And I'm, I'm saying this because and this isn't even part of the message. I'm saying this because I am, I'm struggling for a voice or, or I'm struggling, you know. I don't want you guys to think for a minute uh, that the messages over the past couple of weeks or months have been to be critical um, of one side or another. I would hope that as you listen, that you, you pick up that my, my approval of anything political is equally frustrated on both sides of the aisle or the issue. And I have just felt compelled that as we look at how we are as a nation, as a people, as a church, that it is very critical that we get back to worshiping God and God alone and not God and. So, and I am dealing with that in the sense that I am convicted of where I have worshiped God and. So this is from a very personal standpoint. That makes sense at all. If it didn't, thank you for listening. Um, and we'll just get started. Okay, because this is what hit me. I was awakened at uh, around 4.30 this morning. And with just a thought. Um, and I, I just got up and I... I said, look, I'm going to even try to go to sleep. Let's work this out. So I looked over the message. I, I prayed over it. Um, and, and this is what, what God brought back to me um, as how he goes, I, I hope this makes sense to, to you, John. And I have told you that God's, God will speak to me through Avengers movies and superheroes and Walt Disney and all. I mean, because I'm simple. I'm, and and he, he reaches out to me this way. And, uh, but he reached out, and, and I'm like worrying about where as a people and as a church, we are upset and blaming everybody else, or we have these notions that we are chasing, or if this would happen, and this is going to happen, and this is going to happen. And this morning I was awakened and remembered of a thing called the Stockdale Paradox. Is anybody familiar with the Stockdale Paradox? It's named after Vice Admiral James Stockdale, who, if you're a history buff, James Stockdale was the vice presidential candidate that ran alongside Ross Perot, if I'm right. Okay? And one of my first, uh, my, my first introduction to James Stockdale, Admiral Stockdale, was... During one of the debates, he was ridiculed for how he responded. He just he kind of, he was very contemplative. He didn't speak really fast. You could tell he was thinking about something. And I remember seeing on the comedy shows and all this, they made fun of James Stockdale. Like he, he wasn't emotionally or mentally fit for the position. And so it made me want to know about James Stockdale Here's what I learned. James Stockdale was the highest ranking U.S. military official in the Hanoi Hilton as a prisoner of war during the Vietnam War. He was the highest 
He was tortured more than 20 times during his eight years of imprisonment. He would refuse to be the face for the well-treated prisoner to the point where he would take furniture in his cell and beat himself with it so that he would have scars and bruises on his face, taking shards of glass and pottery and cutting himself so that he would have scars and they wouldn't put him in front of the camera to lie about how well they've been treated. Asked by author Jim Collins in his book, From Good to Great, how Admiral Stockdale dealt with the seemingly hopeless situation, Admiral Stockdale replied, I never lost faith in the end of the story. I never doubted not only that I would get out, but that I would prevail in the end. I remember reading that, and that's what woke me up this morning. Because you would think, by hearing some of the murmur around, that God is dead, and there is no hope, and there is no there is no chance that we're going to conquer. And I just, I just want to tell you right now that that's wrong. Regardless of the turmoil that we are in as a sinful people, God is still God. And, and the story ends up like this. He wins. And I love that fact about what Stockdale is saying. And here's why he felt that was so important. He said, I never lost faith in the end of the story. I never doubted that not only that I would get out, but that I would prevail in the end. And then he was asked, well, who did not make it out? To which Stockdale replied, oh, that's easy. The optimist. They're the ones who said, we're going to be out by Christmas. And Christmas would come, and Christmas would go, and then they'd say, we're going to be out by Easter. And then Easter would come, and Easter would go, and then they'd say, well, we'll be out by Thanksgiving. And then Thanksgiving would come and go, and then it would be Christmas again. And they would die of a broken heart. He goes on to say, this is a very important lesson. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end which you cannot afford to lose with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. Never lose hope in the end of the story, but never sugarcoat the brutal facts of where we are now. I think that's what the prophets of old were supposed to do. I think that's what the prophets of now are supposed to do, is to make sure that we never lose hope in the story, but that we don't sugarcoat the where we are at now. There's a phrase that's been batted around quite a bit lately about moving the goalpost, meaning that if, if you, uh, you make this prediction and if it doesn't come through, well, then you just move the goalpost. And look, 
any side of any argument moves the goalpost. So what I always say about predicting the end of the world, you really only have to be right once. And you can just keep throwing it out there. Well, I, you know, I got this. That's moving the goalpost. Here's what I'm figuring out for me. I don't know if it's for you or not. But regardless of who moves the goalpost, if you are aiming for the wrong goalpost, you'll always end up missing the point. And the point is that God is still faithful. He is still amazing, and he is still here. And that leads us to our story today from 2 Chronicles chapter 12, starting with the first verse. I think we're reading 12 verses today. After Rehoboam's position as king was established, he had become strong. He and all Israel with him abandoned the law of the Lord. Uh, read that again because I want you to pick up on that. After Rehoboam's position as king was established and he had become strong, he and all of Israel with him abandoned the law of the Lord. Because they had been unfaithful to the Lord, Shishak, king of Egypt, attacked Jerusalem in the fifth year of King Rehoboam with 1,200 chariots and 60,000 horsemen and the innumerable troops of Libyans, Succites, and Cushites that came with him from Egypt. He captured the fortified cities of Judah and came as far as Jerusalem. Now let's pick up on that one. I had read that first verse a couple times. This is what Rehoboam did once he became established, once he became strong and secure. He trusted in God so long as he felt he needed him. But he grew independent of God instead of more dependent on him as he got success. As he felt like he had arrived, it was no longer necessary for him to bow down to another God because he had it all. And his strength, Rehoboam's strength, his success, and his independence left him outside of God's protection because he felt like he didn't need God to protect him. Now there's a lesson here. We need to have this discipline and this lifestyle of going to God in obedience in all times. Everybody prays when it's DEFCON 5, right? Everybody prays when the situation is dire. But are we praying when the situation is improving? Are we reliant on him? Now, I'm a music teacher at points in my life. And one of the first lessons I learned about being a music teacher is this. If the band plays well, you had nothing to do with it. And if the band doesn't, you're a terrible conductor. Let me say that again. If the band plays well, it's not any of your doing. They're just talented kids. But man, if they don't play well, you're a lousy teacher. 
I think this is a way that we can look at it. When things are going great, when things are going great and we build it up and we have prayed and prayed and prayed and we have gotten to a place where it starts to look sunny again and it starts to be a little, and then we get a little bit more success and we get a little bit more security and we get a little bit more strength, we get a little bit more money coming into the account, we get all these things, it's easy for us to think, yeah, I'm pretty good at this. I've done this. I've built this. And it would be easy for us to, to move farther and farther away from giving God the glory for all that we have. Because we can feel like, look, I don't know what all he did for me. I did this. I worked this. And that is what's happening and what has happened to Rehoboam. Rehoboam walked into the job because he was Solomon's son. It wasn't anything that Rehoboam had done other than be born and born lucky. He ruled more harshly and more strict than his dad did, and the people despised him. But because they despised him and feared them, he had control, and he built up. And the more that he got successful, the more he started buying into the myth that he was all that. And Rehoboam's strength, success, and independence left him outside of God's protection not because God didn't want to protect him, but because Rehoboam felt like he didn't need God to protect him. Now, there's the line in verse 2. Because they had been unfaithful to the Lord. To be unfaithful to God is one of the books of Chronicles' key themes. Just as a point of reference, the phrase unfaithful to God never occurs in 1st and 2nd Samuel or 1st and 2nd Kings. It, it's something that only is happening in, in Chronicles. And its regular occurrence shows Israel's constant estrangement from God, that moving away. And to be unfaithful to God, and I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about those moments where you lose it and you don't follow God's way, you realize you're wrong, and you go right back. What Chronicles is talking about in this unfaithful to God is the denying God the worship that is due to him and him alone. When, when the writer of Chronicles says that they were unfaithful to God, he is saying that they decided that they would not worship God as much as he deserves or they would worship other things with God. And usually this is happening, and it happened for Israel. It's usually happening on a national scale. And it is the primary reason given in Chronicles for Israel's exile. They just stopped worshiping God the way he deserved to be worshipped. This is why I'd love to use the line, for those who have ears, let them hear. There is nothing new. The, everything repeats. And so when Shishak from Egypt comes and attacks, it is complete shock and awe. It is overwhelming the forces that he brings up from Egypt to take Israel. And this is where we come up to verse 5. It says, Then the prophet Shemaiah came to Rehoboam and to the leaders of Judah who had assembled in Jerusalem for fear of Shishak. 
And he said to them, this is what the Lord says. You have abandoned me. Therefore, I now abandon you to Shishak. It's harsh, isn't it? You, you never want to hear that word of God related to you. You've abandoned me. He didn't say, I'm abandoning you because I don't like the way you're acting. I'm abandoning you because I like somebody else better. He's saying, look, you abandoned me first. So I'm abandoning you. So if Judah insists on forsaking God, then God would forsake Judah and they'd find themselves in a bad place. Forsaken. Sinfulness. Pride, disobedience, idolatry, worshiping other things other than God or giving them a seat by God in worship. All of these things are the catalyst that leads to being forsaken. When our sinfulness gets in the way, as minute as that sinfulness may be, as small as seemingly it is to us, it starts the chain reaction for us to be forsaken because we are forsaking God. Because of our sinfulness. Now there are times when I'm up here and I say something that I feel like it's me making a grasp at a straw and I'm like, I really hope this is biblical. This is not one of these times. This, this is truth. This is the truth of God's word. Our sinfulness leads to us being forsaken because it's the thing that starts it all. And how do I know this? Because when Christ was on the cross... When Christ took upon himself all our sins, when Christ went to the cross to pay the punishment for those sins, he took all the sins that were committed before that time and all the sins that would be committed after that time, he took them all on him. And in Matthew 27, verse 46, Jesus cries out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma shabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He felt it. He felt that moment when all of our sin, all of our sin caused God to say, I cannot be in the presence of that sin, and, I, and he walked away. And it devastated Christ. And so what I want to tell you is, if you think that God is serious enough to walk away from his son, the word become flesh, his child, our savior. If it's enough for him to walk away from him, there's no way we can think he wouldn't do it to us. And not because he wants to, but because he has to. He cannot be in the presence of that sin. Now, I want to move back. So back to 2 Corinthians 12, verse 6, because this is important. It reads, the leader of Israel and the king, Rehoboam himself, humbled themselves and said, the Lord is just. They humbled themselves and they said, you know what? He's right. This is all on us. This is our fault. They didn't cry out and say, God save us. They didn't cry out and say, have pity on us, have mercy on us. They didn't do any of that. They said, we have sinned. 
And when they say the Lord is just, they are saying, and he has every right to allow this to happen to us because we walked away from him. This national repentance was initiated by the leaders of the kingdom. Historically, great moves of God's spirit are seen when leaders are zealous about repentance and humility. Not about righteousness in votes. To recognize that the Lord is righteous is also to recognize that we are not. To say this meant they understood that they deserved their present misfortune at the hands of Shizak. They didn't blame someone or something else. They didn't chase after a wild notion or a conspiracy. They didn't yell at the top of their lungs, you're evil. They didn't, look, ah. Because I always worry that you're like, oh, he's one of them. And, and what I love about where I'm at in my life is I equally make both sides of the issue mad at me. So that makes me think I might be onto something. They didn't blame someone or something else for their predicament. They looked at it and they said, okay, if this is what the word of the Lord says, then the reason he's saying it is because we messed up. And he's right to do this. And then verse 7, when the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, this word of the Lord came to Shemaiah. Since they have humbled themselves, I will not destroy them, but will soon give them deliverance. My wrath will not be poured out on Jerusalem through Shishak. They will, however, become subject to him so that they may learn the difference between serving me and serving the kings of other lands. When Judah forsook the law of God, when they turned away for it, it was as if they offered themselves up to say, look, I'm not going to serve you, God. I want to serve this one. I want to go over here. And they offered themselves up as servants to another master. Because of that, God will allow them to experience some of the consequences of serving another master. Now, parents, young, old, I mean, look, I hope I'm not the only one who's done this. Have you ever had it with your kids, and you're watching them, and you're looking, and you're like, that's not going to end well, and you tell them that's not going to end well, and they don't care, and they continue to do it, so you tell them again, that's not going to end well, and they still don't care, and they don't listen, so you tell them again, that's not going to end well, and they're tired of them being told that it's not going to end well, so they look at you because you don't know anything about nothing because you've never lived life, and they say you don't know anything about nothing because you don't live life. I'm going to live my own life. Let me do what I'm going to do. And then you go, okay. Anybody ever done that other than me? Everybody had that done to them? <laughs> I think that's what God does here. Are you going to keep telling me you don't need me? Okay. You don't need me. But you're going to live with the consequences of saying that. Now, my greatest lessons that I've ever learned in life are when I wasn't protected from my own sinfulness or stupidity, but I lived through the consequences of it. Verse 9. When Shishak, the king of Egypt, attacked Jerusalem, he carried off the treasures of the temple of the Lord, and the treasures of the royal palace. We're kind of making a shift here. He took everything, including the gold shield Solomon had made. King Rehoboam made bronze shields to replace them 
and assigned these to the commanders of the guard on duty at the entrance of the royal palace. Whenever the king went to the Lord's temple, the guards went with him, bearing the shields. And afterwards, they returned them to the guard room. What's that got to do with anything? Why are we wasting time reading that, John? That seems kind of... They took the shields, right? And so, you know, Rehoboam made bronze ones. Well, here, look, we learned about this last week. In the span of five years, Rehoboam blew through all of the wealth of Solomon's kingdom. Solomon had left a great wealth to his son, both in the temple and in the palace. But after five years, that wealth was mostly gone. And the reason it was mostly gone is because Rehoboam and Judah forsook, they were unfaithful to the law of God. Now, these shields that Solomon had made were useless in battle. They're made of gold. Gold is heavy and gold is soft, right? So if you've got a shield that is soft, that's the last thing you want your shield to be. But man, did they look good. And when everything was going great, people would go, look at our gold shields. Surely God loves us and has protected us. And Solomon did this knowing that they were of no use in battle because he figured that God would take care of it. But it looked good. This is an emphasis of substance, of image, I'm sorry, of image being greater than substance. And it begins in the days of Solomon, and it worsens all the way up to Rehoboam. The Rehoboam, when the, the shields got taken, he goes, oh, we need shields. We need, can't have a kingdom without shields. What do the people think? So he had the shields made out of bronze, which is much cheaper than gold. But guess what you can do to bronze if you shine it? You buff it up, you can get bronze to look almost gold-like, right? They'll never know. Rehoboam was keeping up the appearances. Rehoboam was all about shine over substance, all about all sizzle and no snake, all about all hat and no cattle just appearance here's what I want us to take away this morning some of them are questions they go back to the start where we talk how often do we neglect to go to God when things are going great when was the last time you called somebody I have a prayer request okay what is it things are just awesome I mean, the government keeps sending me checks. It's great. When was the last time you called somebody and said, my marriage is perfect today? I'm being facetious. We don't. Do we? We have a sign in our house. The first thing I see when I walk in the door, and I love that Kim put it there because it is a great reminder. It says, Dear God, I don't want to ask you for anything today. I just want to thank you for all that I have. Now, I don't know how many times I've walked through that door and seen that when I'm just like, I'm about ready to just blow something up, you know? And then you're like, okay. Or when the days are really good and you can feel really proud and full of yourself, you walk in and you see that and you're like, and the reason that I have this day because you are a good God. 
How often do we neglect to go to God when things are going well? Catch yourself on that. Here's the other one that I picked up in this passage. The great danger of telling God to leave me alone is that someday he may answer that prayer. Someday he might just say, okay. We've gone this far. Okay. The odds, here's the other one. The odds that everyone is out to get you and it is all conspiracy are really, really low. I'm not saying that it couldn't happen. I'm just saying it probably isn't. We reap what we sow. And I believe that's where we're at as a nation and as a people and as a church. We've been slowly and slowly and slowly replacing God's protection with gold shields that shine. And then when those get broken and stolen, we, we put bronze that we can shine up. We, we put God in. God in this, God in that, and we, we started to worship them like they're a team. And I think we're at that point where God's just saying, I need you to come back to me. We reap what we sow. The thing about a sinful life is this, that it is both expensive and painful. That's the other thing that I learned. Expensive and painful. It's enticing as all get out, but it'll cost and it'll hurt. Let's talk about these shields for a second as we close up. Solomon's shields of gold, they were ceremonial devices. They weren't any good for battle. They were just there for show that were carried in the procession of worship into the temple. So when they would come into worship, you know, our God is an awesome God, our shields are gold and bright. I just made that up. That's, that's what you get with me. I just, on the fly, right there. All right, that's what they did. It was all show. Hey, church is starting. Here come the shields. All right, hey, we got gold shields. That's awesome. And they symbolized, and, and there's nothing wrong with this, they symbolized the richness and the glory of God who had protected them. And when the shields would come through, they brought back memories of the many times that God had delivered Israel from its enemies where God was faithful to be that provider. They were memories of a time when David was king. And David's life was known for his unwavering commitment and passionate love of God. And we said this last week, you're going to go, what about Uriah and what about Bathsheba? Isn't that a blot? Yeah, it's a blot. But David owned up to that sinfulness, and he asked God for forgiveness, and he took the consequences of his actions as his own responsibility. And David's life was known for his unwavering commitment and passionate love of God. But with each generation of his family, that passion and that commitment diminished. It started to diminish during Solomon's reign, and it all disappeared. During, all but disappeared during Rehoboam's. And so now we're at a place where the spirit of worship had died, and now even the symbols of worship were dying. The temple had been looted, and God was no longer with Israel as her protector and deliverer. That's why he told through the prophet that. You've forsaken me, I'm done with you. But Rehoboam knew that the shields were important. So he duplicated them. 
But the big difference was that they were bronze instead of gold. And he just wanted them to look good. And, and these, these cheap shields summed up Rehoboam's reign. His grandfather, David, had experienced the strong, protective presence of God throughout his life. My favorite psalm, Psalm 3. Psalm 3.3 says this. This is David. But you, Lord, are a shield around me. See where I'm tying this all in here. David's saying, you are a shield around me. My glory, the one who lifts my head high. You think about this for a second. When David, David's heart was such, he had no business with cumbersome shields of man-made importance. Remember when he went to go see Goliath? What's the first thing that they wanted to do? All right, if you're going to go out there, you need to be equipped. What did he they gave him a shield? What did he say about the shield? It's too heavy. It's not going to work. Can't lift the sword. You can't go out there with five stones and a sling. I didn't realize I had five stones and a sling. I did know that I had God because he told me to do it. You, O Lord, are a shield around me. David is saying, because you, God, are in my heart, I am protected. And Solomon made his golden shields to symbolize the strong presence that God had, but Rehoboam lost even that symbol, and he substitutes it for a cheap imitation. David had been a man of prayer with a heart after God, and he poured out his, his praise. He poured out his spirit in significant praise and compassionate intercession and prayer. Now Solomon, he prayed, but not as passionately, because at some point Solomon got all caught up because he was the smartest man in the world. You're the wisest guy in the world. And that went to his head. And he forgot that there's something not of this world that is wiser than him. But he didn't have time for that. And he got caught up in all the blueprints and the building projects. He got caught up in the shine and the glimmer. So he filled the temple with gold to symbolize the glory of God. But he began to experience little of it himself. And by the time we get to his son Rehoboam, the glory of God was remembered but not experienced. It was honored, but it was honored cheaply. And those, those bronze shields symbolize the cheapness of a religion or a faith that doesn't spring out of personal experience. And you're like, well, you know, I gave my life to Christ. I, you know, I was baptized. I, I, I get that. But there's, there's so many of us that that personal experience isn't one of humbleness, of brokenness, of getting to the point in front of the altar where you go, I am nothing without the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And if I am apart from him, I am nothing. Eventually, even the symbols that we put up to remember become tarnished and useless. And a tarnished, cheap shield is useless. And we have allowed our hearts to be tarnished. We've allowed our hearts to be tarnished because we've brought in unforgiveness or bitterness we're tired of being called uh, what are we called undesirables we're tired of being called liberals we're tired of being called progressives we hear it over and over and we get madder and madder 
tired of being called conservatives or Christians. We're tired of Christians always taking it on the chin and never fighting back. I'm with you. I get there. I'm there. We get tired of that. But as we get tired of it, instead of going strictly to God, we started to add on, well, if you're going to fight me that way, I'll fight you the way you fight me. And then that's bringing in another influence. And pretty soon it's not just the purity of a heart for God. It's a heart for God and the need to be right, the need to make money, this, whatever. Our hearts will be tarnished because we have God and in our worship. And we will go through the refiner's fire to remove the impurities. Gold is is made pure. Metal is made pure and strong by heating it up. And when the dross, all the junk that's not that pure comes to the surface and it's scraped off. It's not pleasant, but it's necessary. It will be for the best. But are holding on to the injuries and the slights and the betrayals. We settle for useless bronze shields. And in holding on to the bitterness and the resentment and the wish list of what we want to say to others and what we want to do to others is simply building the foundation of a cardboard shack built on the open sewer that is flooding today with the yesterday's crap. And we settle. And God says, I have so much grander accommodations in mind for you. But our hearts have to be different. Here's the hope. I love this verse. It's what I started with. Verse 12. But Rehoboam humbled himself, and the Lord's anger turned from him, and he was not totally destroyed. Indeed, there was some good in Judah. Friends, you are the good in Judah. We are the good in Judah. We are the remnant that will seek God and to worship God and God alone. And when we lift him up, we will draw others to ourselves. We we don't know how much humbling we need. Seriously, I'm in a stretch now where I'm like, okay, I think I've learned my lesson. Oh, evidently not. Okay. Let's do it again. I don't know how much humbling we need. God does. And God will humble us enough to get to the point where we are his and his alone. We don't need the bronze shields of Jeroboam. We don't even need the gold shields of Solomon. But we cannot get along with the unalloyed God gold of David's heart. We cannot survive without a heart like David's that is pure and committed to Christ. That's why God was David's shield. Because David decided that he gave his heart solely and completely to God. David had a heart worth protecting. Is your heart completely and solely God's? God's and no one and nothing else. Because if it's not, we are not protected by that God. But when it is, he is our shield. And he is our reward. Let's pray. Father God, search us, search our hearts, and find if there is anything in those hearts that is not of you and like a refiner's fire, burn it off. 
But Lord, we have to come to you with that. We have to come to you in that brokenness and in that humbleness. And no matter where we are in our walk with you, there is not a one of us that cannot benefit from saying, search me and see what's not of you. And take it out. And Lord, we'll give you our heart. We'll give you everything that we are. We'll give back to you in our hearts. You and you alone, unadulterated, unalloyed, pure, our hearts, committed to you. And you are faithful and you will be our shield. In your name we pray this way. Amen. Amen.